Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here and Bill Padalo back with me as well. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. Absolutely. And so today is October 24th, 2019. As always, with you here on a Thursday. As usual, broadcasting live from Southern California. Uh, Neil Garfield will be back next Thursday. Meanwhile, I'm happy to let all the listeners know, as always, that this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it's made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. So what Bill and I are going to get into today is we are going to do a bit of revisiting with that tremendous uh, Florida case, very borrower-friendly, unusually so. Comparatively speaking, whether you're talking judicial foreclosure venues like Florida or non-judicial foreclosure venues like here in California where I practice. So the uh, Florida case in question, which uh, Bill will be able to jump right back into in in, in, in a couple of minutes, is, again, this U.S. bank. LSF9 trust case, and it had a number of twists and turns, but the most beautiful aspect from our point of view to how this case is played out is you have an actual dismissal with prejudice, very unusual, and that's very uh, good news for the borrower in that case. Uh, We also are going to uh, get further into another issue that we've kind of touched on uh, in various guises at various times over the years. Uh, It involves title insurance. It involves what kind of bona fides title companies are expected to either sign off on or, frankly, not sign off on when they are 
essentially confirming that a pending sale is good to go, or they're entertaining documents kind of at the front end of, let's say, an escrow account that has been set aside for a particular sale, and Fidelity National Title Insurance Company. They are one of the main players, foreclosure or not, in the, title, in, in the title insurance world. It's true throughout the 50 states. So uh, Bill is going to have some excellent intel and insight related to some case matters where, where Fidelity Title very much shows up to be a great interest to uh, litigants and what we are trying to accomplish in these cases. And of course, when I say we, I mean that in a very metaphorical collective sense. Uh, I, I don't give these disclaimers on every show, but the, the bumper uh, music, as it were, both starting and ending this broadcast, both give the disclaimers and the disclaimers I should say, are so standard on this show that they can be essentially incorporated by reference. Nevertheless, as a reminder, not getting legal advice on this show, trying to give insight, trying to give food for thought, essentially a framework and a window that listeners can then follow up on and pursue further using various resources, including Neil's blog, uh, including Bill Padalo's excellent uh, investigative work. Uh, so, Bill, why don't you get into this whole uh, U.S. Bank LSF9 trust issue uh, again for our listeners? Sure. I'd be happy to. This, it's the old Achilles heel we've been talking about, the old power of attorneys and the authority for these parties to do what they're doing behind the scenes and just how important uh, it is that, uh, at least from a title perspective, uh, as I'll talk about in sharing some details in my own personal case in Oregon, uh, is that they understand behind the curtains just how important it is to have these power of attorney and these authoritative documents uh, recorded to show the authority for the parties who are signing and executing the substitution of trustees and the assignments and everything of that nature when they're doing a non-judicial foreclosure sale. They are actually um, admitting, and I'll get into this in a few minutes, uh, that uh, if they don't have those requisite authorities or proof of those authorities, then um, they've got uh, real title issues. They can't pass title and convey title to the next buyers. But Starting off with the U.S. Bank Trust N.A. plaintiff for the or a trustee for the LSF Nine Master Participation Trust, uh, I want to remind the listeners if you if you listen to the last show that we talked about this, <clears throat> one of the key issues that we were going up against on this entity for for a number of years now that I've been investigating them in cases throughout the United States is that. The documents showing their authority to do anything stemming uh, from 
the actual trust agreements or power of attorney documents, things of that nature, they have pushed back and have refused to uh, comply and produce these documents when uh, requested in formal discovery, and even they push back when uh, even on motions to compel. Uh, and and so, what was uh, wonderful about this particular case is that even though they did not ever produce the trust agreement and a lot of the ancillary agreements we were after. The one document they did produce in the case, uh, which was a securitization and servicing agreement, uh, which Caliber claims was the authoritative document giving them the rights to seek the foreclosure and to do everything they were doing to service the loan and so on and so forth, all stemmed from this particular document. And what was uh, wonderful about this is that they fought tooth and nail to get this under protective order and under confidentiality uh, before trial, and they fought that for a year. And then at the day of trial, this document, um, I don't know whether you want to call it a mistake on their part or whatever, but uh, it suddenly was uh, agreed to be admitted into evidence and of public record by uh, the, the bank's attorneys. And this is where I kind of, again, had my field day pointing out to the court that whereas their own witness couldn't explain anything regarding this document, I pointed out that it was very clear that U.S. Bank Trust N.A. was nowhere a part of this SSA agreement, first and foremost. And number two, the document clearly states that the servicer caliber was only granted the authority to do anything uh, by the indenture trustee, which was U.S. Bank N.A., and of course the indenture and the trust agreements and everything were missing and never produced. So even though the court didn't have to go very far in opining in the overall decision against the plaintiff that they didn't prove their case, this document was made of public record and I think this document uh and and the transcript as I you know talked to and explained this to the court is going to be very useful across the entire country when it comes to the, you know, I, I can't cut the countless foreclosures around the country by the name of this entity and the thousands of documents that they're executing in the public land records, uh, the assignments, the substitutions of trustees. Um, I've got a case right now. I'm looking at two notalanges that just suddenly appeared by Caliber signing them as attorney in fact, right? This document clearly shows that they did not have that authoritative uh, or they didn't have the authority to do any of these acts, okay? And so I think this is going to be very potentially could be very uh, damaging for them, Um for anybody out there who was going to try to uh, challenge or defend a foreclosure against this party or this entity or try to challenge their authority to seek a non-judicial foreclosure or whatever it might be, um, I think this is going to be really, really critical and important evidence to finally come to light. Now, this is only a, a small piece of the puzzle to come to light, but it's a very, very important piece um, because it, again, clearly shows uh, that uh, they're misrepresenting their authority. Now, one interesting part that I point out is when I 
showed this to the court and explained this to the court that the plaintiff did not have the authority for their own proffered document, they had an opportunity to put their witness back on the stand to rebut me. And of course, they they deny. They just they chose not to, which is uh, very very telling. So anyway, um, this kind of segues into some of the issues in my own personal case in Oregon. And I want to share some of the internal discovery documents that have been produced, which um, gives a very interesting uh, view from, you know, behind the curtain of what's going on in, in, in my case, but it pretty much probably is going on in, in other cases all over the place and has been for a number of years. And it's very difficult to get your hands on this kind of information or to actually see it. And so uh, when when it does come to light, as it, does, as it has in my case, boy, I tell you, it's really clear and, and, and alarming as to what these parties are doing behind the scenes to try to push these REO properties through to uh, to close and to to get cash buyers in the door to to turn and burn these properties, um, even in the midst of knowing that the there are serious title defects and the likelihood is is that they can't convey title because the sales were illegal. So, case in point, uh, being my own for anyone who's listening. Um, my property was foreclosed non-judicially. I had a Washington Mutual loan. It was closed non-judicially back in 2009. And, and I challenged the uh, sale. I'm sorry, what's that? I was, I was just clarifying for listeners. I think they know this. But when you speak of your property, you're, you're talking about the property you, you – you're talking about the property in Oregon, correct? Right, right. This is this is my uh, Oregon property that was foreclosed non-judicially, and it was uh, it was a Washington Mutual loan, and it went and and so through the FDIC, Chase is the one uh, who uh, claims to have gone through and foreclosed, so on and so forth. So, on the heels of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Jezinoski in 2015, I sought to get a declaratory judgment based on my rights that I had rescinded my loan within three years, and so therefore. Based on the Jezinoski decision, uh, I filed uh, an ejectment action in Oregon, which is simply uh, to evict. It's for possession and title of the property. So I filed a complaint to evict the current occupants of the home who purchased uh, the the property as an REO from, they they say they bought it from Chase, Um, and so, and to get possession back to my property on the on the fact that Jezinoski determined the effect of rescission was that the security instrument was void by operation of law upon mailing and therefore it's impossible for title to have uh, for that for deeds that have been voided to have been foreclosed and transferred forward to any other party so that's kind of the gist of my ejectment action that I filed so in this case, uh, Bill, Fidelity more. Title is uh, representing the current uh, occupant of the home that I'm suing uh, because there's a title insurance policy that was uh, granted to them for the, for the purchase price. So that's kind of who I'm up against. Now, Okay, I was going to break in for a second so listeners would know. I'm almost sure my recollection is there was a Liz Pendens also 
on this property at the time these interloping buyers came in. Is, is that correct? No, uh, absolutely. So uh, while I was in uh, litigation, there was a list pendants on the property, and uh, that's when the whole conveyance and the sale, they were trying to hurry up and push this uh, sale transaction through to the current uh, occupants and the buyers, uh, trying to pass the hot potato, so to speak. Um, and the conveyances and those, the, the sale occurred during the litigation and while the list pendants was in place. So, uh, yes, that's one of the arguments we're making, obviously, is that they were never a bona fide purchaser for value because they were clearly on notice and knew that there were title defects and so on and so forth with, with the property when they bought it. So um, in this treasure trove here of, of uh, discovery documents that uh, we obtained, it, there's, it starts off with a number of preliminary title reports that were issued right during that time period of the litigation. And the preliminary title reports clearly show, and the buyer was aware, that the, there were a number of issues pertaining to the title. Not only did they recognize that there was a current litigation and list pendants, but uh, one of the key, thing that, key things that they pointed out is that there was a recorded substitution of trustee in the county records, and that was the authoritative document that gave the trustee who eventually foreclosed the property and sold it at the trustee sale, that was the authoritative document, right? And that substitution of trustee was uh, executed by an attorney in fact. Now, it was a squiggle mark, robo-signed uh, document, and um, it, arguably there's, it's an attorney in fact for an attorney in fact, because it's uh, signed by J.P. Morgan or the FDIC in uh, giving Chase the authority as attorney in fact, and then it's signed by attorney in fact, which is a LPS uh, party, but LPS is nowhere identified on the document. So, so what they're uh, what these internal emails show is that. Fidelity Title is saying, and to the real estate agents and everybody trying to close this loan, they're saying, listen, we've got problems here because we cannot find a recorded power of attorney document in the county records to show the authority for the substitution of trustee for the party who signed this document. And they are saying and admitting in these emails that, look, if we can't uh, cure this somehow, or if we can't come up with a valid power of attorney to show the authority on this document that was recorded, we don't have a valid sale. And we're likely going to have to re-foreclose this property, even though years, two years have gone by since the sale. They're saying, we have no choice, but we're going to have to go back and re-foreclose because we can't convey title to the next party because we can't show the authority. Now, they start working, and this is one of their key issues, and they are going back and forth for a period of three months getting frustrated and trying to figure out how to get around this particular obstacle. And in doing so, uh, they get Chase's uh, key person involved, and, and Chase comes in and says, look, guys, we can't. We don't have an original power of attorney document. We don't. We can't find one. We don't have one. 
And in fact, we never had any processes in place to store these POAs or to locate these POAs. Okay, so they're saying we, we don't even have a process to, to, to uh, keep track of these things. Okay, now going back and when you look at the consent judgments that they signed, one of the key things that was pointed out in their investigation by the AGs was that Chase, for example, did not have safe and sound practices in place to and processes in place to document these the the authorities for those to do what they were doing right for all the uh, assignments they were executing and everything else that they they were it was specifically targeted for having unsafe unsound practices well here you know chase is admitting we don't have an original poa it doesn't exist we can't find it anywhere okay so now the county recorder uh, is telling they're trying to get this POA recorded somehow, and they're trying to come up with copies from different jurisdictions elsewhere. And they went to Utah, to Salt Lake City, and they 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 found one. They thought maybe this will work, and and they come forth with it, and they try to record it. And the county recorder says, No, no, not going to record that one. It's not an original, so on and so forth. And they're like, Geez, you know, we've got to have an original. Well. They admit, okay, these aren't original, but they try to find new ways to keep pushing this thing through and to get it recorded. Well, at the end of the day, um, they they flat out knew that uh, they needed two power of attorneys uh, recorded in the land records, and without it, that they they admit that the sale uh, was illegal. Okay, and so. Uh, Ultimately, they could not cure this defect because the POAs, they couldn't come up with the proper POAs, and the POAs were never recorded. And so the the buyer and the emails are saying, listen, now we're not going to close this deal until these title defects are cured. We want assurances that, that you've cured these problems, not only with the POA, but with the list pendants and all of that sort of thing. So there's there's all kinds of... Uh, cover-ups in these emails, and if I had an hour to talk about I could share with the, the listeners a lot more of the shenanigans going on here. But at the end of the day here, they, uh, they, the borrower says, I'm not going to close it unless these exceptions are cured, these title issues are cured. And lo and behold, right before the closing, the day before the closing, a new title report comes, and the exception dealing with the unrecorded POAs is suddenly deleted from, from the title report, and they removed it as an exception. <laughs> so uh, so they proceeded to go in and, and have the buyers uh, sign on the dotted line, even with the, with the list pendants in play, and even knowing that, the, that they couldn't convey title, uh, due to the lack of authority, um, but they went ahead and did it anyway. So what this really means, and there's a great case out of Oregon, if, if, if you're an Oregon listener, you've had these issues in Oregon, uh, it's it's a 2016 appellate decision that came out in Wolf versus GMAC Mortgage, and it speaks very specifically about uh, 
the fact that titled uh, a person's rights to the property, their interests in the property are not foreclosed if there's in the absence of a validly appointed trustee. And and it says right in there, it says in the absence of a validly appointed trustee, there is no trustee at all for purposes of the Oregon Trustee Act, and hence no trustee sale with the power to foreclose other person's property interests. So what I'm saying here in, in, in my case and in Oregon and a lot of these non-judicial jurisdictions or whatever, when you have these documents saying it's signed by attorney and facts, the title companies are probably aware that there's a problem conveying title if there is if you cannot show ultimately the authority of those parties signing as attorney in fact. And I'll tell you right now, the vast majority do, of these documents that they're recording, the substitutions of trustee and, and everywhere, California, Washington, all over in these non-judicial states, the assignments, all of them as attorney in fact, rarely ever uh, point to the, the authoritative power of attorney document having been recorded. And in my research, it's a vast majority, there is no authority or authoritative POA recorded with these documents. So it's very, I, I think it's ripe for challenge. What do you think, Charles? Oh, I agree with you. And in California, there is an expectation that power of attorneys be recorded. I mean, the law is it's fairly complicated. It is part of the non-judicial foreclosure architecture. There is an expectation that any substitution of trustee empowering a new actor to come in to act on behalf of the beneficiary for the purpose of sale. But yes, that needs to be mediated through a recorded power of attorney. Now, sometimes the written assignments that are either attended to or in many cases predecessing a given power of attorney situation, there could be various assignments various assignments from party to party. Theoretically, under California law, assignments per se don't have to be recorded. They, of course, have to be in writing to be valid. I mean, that's just basic statute of frauds law, which is, as virtually everywhere, taken very seriously in California. So, yes, there's still a certainty that for assignments to be valid, they must be in writing when it relates to uh, property issues, real property. Nevertheless, there's not an absolute requirement and expectation of recording per se, but when it comes to the power of attorneys enabling these transfers where assignments are at issue, then yes, you could say, you could describe the law in that area as requiring recording of powers of attorney, and yes, theoretically they are recorded. Theoretically, there's an expectation that they're recorded, though there can be ridiculous lag times where the power of attorney goes back five, eight, ten years previous, and then all of a sudden it shows up. And then when you look at the predecessor documents and you break down the chain of title, and you, you know, I've had a couple of cases like this recently and the appellate courts are still not doing the right thing, as it were. I mean, they are still typically 
just treating these kinds of deficiencies as voidable, not void. As the saying, at least in California, goes, merely voidable. And this is really a travesty of justice because you can put a huge number of deficiencies, outright illegalities, even illegalities that sound in fraud and sound in all kinds of papering over illegally of the failure of the assignment chain to be to be proper and clean. Everything from the robo-signing we've covered on this show many times to backdating and front-dating front assignments, and as Bill, you're pointing out, and I've seen far too many times powers of attorney that are either not recorded at all or even where they are recorded, the documentation and the uh, the bona fides are are simply not there. So, so uh, we are coming up to the end of our program. So, as always, Bill, I appreciate you being on, and I'm sure you'll be able to uh, break down some of these issues further uh, in another show coming up. Be happy to. I appreciate it as always. Thanks. Okay, thank you, and uh, Neil will be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.